Our Old Testament reading is from Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Our New Testament reading and sermon passage is from 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. And you speak to God. Please be seated. What's the big idea today? It's this. 
since Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, let us keep his word. Before we go further, we should pray with God, to you, praise is due, and to you, vows must be performed. We must keep your word because you are the God over all. Today we want to see also, though, how we want to keep your word because you love us so much. As we read for the song, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Let us be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. God, would you do that now by making my words to be your words and also open the ears of those who now listen. God, may we come to you with great humility. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point is the appeal. Let's look at uh, verse 1, that first half. Little children, I write these things so that you may not sin. Now, I want to ask a question for those of you who are parents. If you are a parent, what is it that you want most for your children? Um, often when that answer goes forth, it might say, well, I want good health for my children, or I want my children to do well in school. I want my child to be great at athlete, athletics. Um, I want my kids to have good friends when they grow up. I want them to get a good job. I want my kids to marry a godly good spouse. I want them to be happy and successful. Those aren't really bad things, but there's more. Uh, as you know, we're having some work done in our house and I'm getting to know some of the contractors. And the contractors, uh, these two brothers, who worked together, and they went to their 40th year high school reunion. And uh, I heard them talking about it, and they said, you know what, all the people did is they bragged about their money, and then they bragged about their kids' accomplishments. And it got me thinking, that's another thing that we want from our kids. We want our kids to make us look good. That's not what John is saying. What does John say he wants for his children? And who are the children? The children are really us. It's the church. It's those who follow Jesus. And what does he say? I want you to not sin. So what he's saying is, is I want you to not sin so that it's not bragging about morality. You know, remember in the old days? You know, you don't want your kids to do drugs or get pregnant. That makes you look bad. Um, today, it's, I don't want my kid to be intolerant. I don't want them to be overly political. It's not about that. And also, we look at this, and he's not bragging about accomplishments. You know, they went to college, they're athletes, they got a great job. He's appealing to, I don't want them to sin, because sin brings death. Sin brings death. And that's what John is saying. I don't want that for my kid. In the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, there the Word of God says that we were created in God's image to fellowship with God. And then it shares and says, sin has ruined all of that. That's called the fall. And so because of the fall, now sin has entered into this world and death is a consequence. And so there's death in relationship. There's death in our purpose and knowing and following God. But then also there's death even in satisfaction and enjoying this life. So John is making an appeal. He appeals to us and he says, do not sin. Now parents and guardians, look at the text. Do you see what this means for what you want for your kids? 
that they would be free from the ruin of sin, that we would help them to follow Jesus, that we would help them to be on a path of life. But also, those of us who are children, the text is saying, you need parents and guardians. Here, John the Apostle, he's like a spiritual father. We need these people to help us walk in a path of life and help us not to sin. So John is appealing to what matters most, your relationship with God. That your fellowship with God would be right and true. So that's the first phrase. Let's continue. Let's continue by looking at the second half of verse 1 into verse 2. And this is the advocate. Let me read. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is so pastoral, is it not? Here John just made an appeal and he says, do not sin, but as a pastor, what does he realize? You're going to sin. You're going to sin. He knows we're going to sin. So let's work through the phrases of these verses because we want to know what he means, but also we want to know how does Christ actually deal with our sin? So the first term is advocate. Here, um, this is a legal term, and it means one who speaks in our defense. In a modern sense, we think of it like a lawyer who's arguing our case before a judge. But we have to kind of pause here. We really have no case. We're guilty. And so if Jesus were trying to go before God and say, you know what, they really aren't that bad, that would be a lie. So we need to understand the original meaning of this word advocate, and it's actually a passive, not active sense. It means one who is called to be along the side of you. It's kind of an awkward way of saying it, but it's one who, one who comes alongside of you to support you, to hold you up, to really be a defense with you and alongside of you. So in the text, it's this ongoing sense that Jesus is helping us before the holy judgment of God. One commentator puts it this way, um, Jesus didn't just go through this life on earth. He died upon the cross, and now his ministry is done. The commentator quotes this, Jesus still bears his concern for men upon his heart today. What's he saying? Yes, Jesus has lived a perfect life on our behalf. He is the requirement of righteousness that we could not do. And so Jesus meets our righteous requirement before God by his perfect life. Yes, Jesus died upon the cross, and it is his blood that satisfies the righteous judgment of a holy God. That means our guilt of our sin is paid in full. We're forgiven, we're accepted. But also, according to this, as an advocate, today, right now, Jesus is interceding for us. He's praying for us. What does he pray? According to this text, one of the prayers is that we would sin not. And then when we would sin, that we would turn back to Jesus. And as we turn to Jesus, we're claiming Jesus as our righteousness. And we are strengthened in him, the advocate. The next term we see is the righteous. Some have taken this to say this is the legal righteousness that Christ has secured for us, which I was just talking about. His active obedience to the law, his passive obedience by dying on the cross for our sin. But the context is this is the righteous character of Christ as he advocates for us. Let me put it in different terms. 
When a lawyer represents you, why does the lawyer do so? Because the lawyer's being paid, okay? It's a job, it's money. When Jesus is representing you, why is he doing it? We're not paying him. What we see here is he's doing it because of love, because of compassion, because of pity. That is his righteous character. What this is saying is, is that Jesus is faithful to you even when you have nothing to pay. Jesus is going to represent you before God even when you are unpresentable because of all your sin and guilt. He is the righteous. What's the next phrase? He is the propitiation for our sins. Now some of you who are using the New International Version, you'll see there it's the atoning sacrifice. If you have a re uh, revised standard version, uh, the term there is expiation. John is using um, kind of a technical term to convey a very important idea. How does one satisfy God because of our guilt? What do we do with our guilt before God? And he's using this term because in the uh, time that he was writing, so about 2,000 years ago, the pagan culture would use this term propitiation to basically say, this is what I must do to satisfy the gods. And it almost had like a negative connotation. It's almost like, you know, the person is saying, all right, here God, here's your sacrifice. Now leave me alone. John is saying there's a different way to think about this. And what he's saying is, is the Christian can't placate the one true God because the one true God is holy. What could we bring that would ever satisfy him? We're sinful. And anything that we would offer would still be marred by sinful intention, uh, this imperfect faith. And so what John is saying is, listen, God himself placates his own wrath against our sin. What we could not do, God himself is now doing. He placates his own wrath. We should not be surprised by that. So back in Genesis, Adam and Eve fall. And one of the first things that God does, it says, he covered them with a skin of an animal. He made a garment of skin for them. I want you to just follow with me. If he's making a garment of skin, what's happened to the animal? It's been sacrificed. Something had to die to cover their shame and their nakedness, their guilt. And so already we see it is God who is doing the covering of the sin. This past uh, fall, if you're now just joining us today, in the fall, we went through a sermon series and we looked at, well, how does a holy God live with sinful people? And we looked at all these forms in the Old Testament, such as the sacrifices. And one of the chief sacrifices was the Day of Atonement. If you remember, that's when they had this goat that they killed and the blood covered the sin, but then also they let this goat go into the wilderness, representing how our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. And then we see this culminating, as we saw during the Advent series, Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who died in our place as the final sacrifice to satisfy the justice of a holy God. Do we see what John is saying? John is saying, if God is the one who is covering our sins, then listen, any sin can be covered. Any sin. 
If you were to go out on a public opinion and say, you know, what is the worst crime? What's the one thing that probably cannot be forgiven? Um, my experience is most people say something like this, murder, you know, killing someone. What does this text say? If anyone does sin, they have an advocate. God himself can cover that sin. We already saw this back uh, last week in chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Jesus cleanses all of our sin. It pays it in full. It is completely done when it is paid by Christ. So friends, what is the only unforgivable sin? The only unforgivable sin is what? Not repenting, not turning to God, not seeking God and his forgiveness. And so what does that often look like? Sometimes it's flat out refusing and the person who says, you know what, I don't need God. God, talk to the hand. <laughs> but more common what we do is this. God, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do more. I'm going to be good. Basically what the person is saying is rather than turning to you for forgiveness, I'm going to try to earn that forgiveness. Here, John is saying, how is a person forgiven? They confess their sins to God. It is that simple. In our church this season, we're doing some memory verses. And so if you have not yet received your um, bookmark, we're trying to work through and memorize three important passages in the uh, book of 1 John. And so last week we introduced 1 John 1.9. Going to actually throw it up there right now. And so again, I know it's a little bit awkward, but this is our memory verse for the week, so let's read this together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that beautiful? See, what's the promise? The promise is that any sin can be forgiven when you confess it. If you do not confess it, that is the unforgivable sin, to not repent before our God. Now someone might say, you know what, if any sin is forgiven so easily, won't that lead to further sin? Friends, you need to hear this. The forgiveness that Christ earned for you was not easy. It was not easy at all. When Jesus went to the cross, he bore the full wrath that was due for our sin. He endured the holy justice that was due for me. And so when I see my own sinfulness... And what Jesus did to earn that pardon, what happens is this. It doesn't lead to further sin. It leads to gratitude. It leads to a deeper obedience in saying, God, I'm going to keep your word. Well, that's our third point. But before we get there, I need to give first a clarification and then a special application for today. Look at the end of verse 2. There it says, Jesus is our propitiation for our sin, but then also for the sins of the whole world. At face value, it seems to be teaching what we call universalism, that all people go to heaven. Now, we need to look at all of the scriptures, but let's just look at 1 John. John says, not all people are saved. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, he says there are two peoples those people who are children of God and then those people who are children of the devil. And so John is not teaching here that everyone is saved. John the Apostle also records the very words of Jesus in his gospel in John chapter 17 verse 9. There Jesus in his prayer
prayer, and this is a prayer. He says, I don't pray for the world, but I'm praying for those you have given me, for they are yours, speaking to the Heavenly Father. So when, Jesus, or when John says, you know, for the sins of the whole world, what does he mean? We need to remember that John is a Jew. And in the Jewish context, the word propitiation is associated with the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was specifically a Jewish thing saying, God is forgiving the, the sins of his own people, the Hebrew race. And so when Jesus, or getting confused, when John says he's dying for the sins of the whole world, he's saying something very profound. He's saying that Jesus... He's the atonement. He's the covering, not only for the Jewish people, but he's also saying he is the atonement and the covering for the non-Jewish people, the Gentile world, me, you, today. And so what he's saying is salvation is universal in the sense that it reaches all peoples. It's not only for the Jew, it's also for the Gentile. But he's not teaching universalism, that all people are saved. So that's one clarification. Now let me give also a very specific application in regard to this portion of the text. Statistically, you know someone who's had an abortion. Um, just the number of people who've had abortions in our country, you look at the kind of the way the probability falls, you, you know someone. Now you may not know they've had an abortion, because it's not something that we always talk about, but probability-wise, you know someone who's had an abortion. Now today is, of course, a Right to Life Sunday, and so I wanted to give a very specific application. When a person has had an abortion, what do they need? Someone might say, we need to tell them that it's sin. I'm sharing with you very compassionately, in my experience, those who've had an abortion, they know that it's sin. And they know that it's hurt them. They know that it's taken away a life. They know the guilt. They know the shame. They know what it means that they have done this. I'm saying most. And a lot of these people who've had an abortion, they've been told this is the unforgivable sin. What does one who's had an abortion truly need? They need an advocate. They need someone who's going to come alongside of them. They need to hear that there is forgiveness found in Christ and Christ alone. It's not trying to forget about it. It's not trying to be a good person. It's not trying to serve in different ministries. It's, Jesus, would you forgive me? It is that simple. It is coming alongside people and bringing them healing that is found in Christ and Christ alone. Looking at our third point, the assurance, we now move to verses 3 through 6. Look at verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him. Just want to pause here. Do you see this emphasis on knowledge, on knowing? Why is he doing this? Remember, John is writing against the heretics in this church, and the group of this heretics are called the Gnostics. Um, this is a group that said you need like a special or, you know, secret knowledge of God to be saved. Hear what John is saying. Uh, look how he finishes that verse. Who's the one who truly knows God? <laughs> the one who keeps his commandments. 
What he's saying is, is, I get it. In the Greek understanding of the world, you can know about God, but then your life can be a complete mess. In other words, in the Greek understanding, as long as I have a right knowledge of God, I can sin as much as I want with my body. And John is saying, that's not the way it works. Now, this should not be surprising to us. There's really nothing new under the sun. During the Enlightenment period, even in our own kind of Western world, we went through a phase where people would say, you know what, we are very enlightened. We know much about God. But during that time, as people were knowing more, it's not like their following God was more. What John is saying is knowledge about God is personal. Listen, Christianity is not a new set of rules. Christianity is saying, I'm coming to the person of Christ who is God. And so Christianity is deeply relational, but it's also active. What he's saying here is when you are in relationship with God, there's this overflowing of love and obedience because you love Jesus. You act like Jesus. He's your life. Now, John in this passage then describes two people to illustrate what he's talking about. Look at verse 4. There he talks about those who have a profession of Christ without the obedience of Christ. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. This would be the person who says, you know what, I'm a Christian. But their lifestyle clearly is not one of following Christ and his commandments. Let me just give a very simple example, sexual immorality. Um, we all see in the news, um, you know, like celebrities and athletes who say, I'm a born-again Christian, but then the tabloids just show what a mess they are with sexual immorality. Their life is riddled with scandal and there's no repentance. It's not that the sin is making them, you know, discredited. That's part of it. But they're not broken over their sin. They're not repenting of this sin. I'll just say, this is how I see it often work in my life as a pastor. Uh, sometimes people will call the church and they'll say, Pastor, will you marry me? And I say, okay, let me see what's going on. And so I invite the couple in. We sit down, we start to talk about their story, and they say, you know what, we're Christians, we love God, uh, we want to get married in the church. And so that's great. Now, kind of share with me, what's going on in your life? Well, we're living together, and we just thought it would be like the right thing to do to get married right now. And as soon as you, know, you hear this, living together, you have to kind of probe into that and say, well, what does that mean? And so this is like a couple who are acting like they're married, but they're not married, and they're saying that they're following God. Now, God's design of marriage is to be married when you're living together because you're showing the exclusivity of one another and your commitment to one another. And I explain that to the person or people. And so I say something like this. All right, I, I'm willing to marry you, and, but it will be a process because we're going to do what we call a Christian marriage. That means you're making vows before God. And they're like, that's good. And I say, you're living together. That's not part of God's design. That's not obedience to him. And so then I'll say something like this. We can have you married this weekend. Let's get all your friends together and let's just celebrate and get you married and kind of ratify what you're already doing. Or another thing is, is let's have you kind of move out from one another and let's go through some you know, real serious premarital counseling and let's work on getting you married. I would say nine out of 10 times when this has happened, they don't call me back. <laughs> um, 
It's easy to say you follow Jesus, but it's another thing to really do what he says. And that's what John is saying in verse 4. But then there's a contrast. Look at verse 5. Those are those who profess Christ with obedience to Christ, and they're doing it as an outflow of love. Look at how he writes. But whoever would keep my commandment, in him the love of God is perfected. Now at first glance, what it seems to be teaching is my performance is what earns God's favor. You see that. Some have used this as, you know, defending perfectionism, that somehow this is up to me to, you know, show that I'm really born again. We need to remember what John is saying in the, you know, the complete letter that he's writing. What has John already taught us? He said, well, all of us have sinned. In fact, he's really blunt. He says, look, if you say you've not sinned, you're a liar. So John is clearly not teaching perfectionism. That's not it. So what is he really saying? He's giving a picture. And the picture is one like this. This is a person who's, they're trying to obey God. It's their heart desire to obey God. But sometimes they disobey. And when they disobey, they turn back to God. And when they turn back to God, then they're obeying God. It's a picture of someone who's walking with Christ because they know it's the right thing to do. But they're walking with Christ because they want to walk with Christ. He's the propitiation for their sin. He's the one who has forgiven them. He is the one who has given them a new life. And now they're saying, I want to obey. So where's the assurance? There's been a change in their life. They're now being completely different. Uh, sin patterns are stopping. Yes, there's still sin there, but the pattern is decreasing. They're becoming if you will, more like Jesus. They're experiencing a greater sense of the fruit of the Spirit. There's more love. There's more joy. There's more peace. This is the person who says, you know what? I think because God loves me so much, I'm now seeing how much I love him, and I want to be like Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. Friends, when we obey God like this, this is relational. This is God perfecting his love in you. He's growing you closer to himself. Now, some of them at this point might say, you know what, I'm a little confused, though. I say I'm a Christian, um, but I don't really have these blatant sins. So I don't see myself as a person like in verse 4, but I don't see a real clear following of Christ and his command. So this is a person who says, you know what, I call myself Christian, but I'm not certain I'm really being a different person for Christ. Um, I'm not certain I have a real obvious walk with Christ. I'm nice, I'm polite, but that just might be because that's the way I was raised. It's formal, it's aloof. At work, I don't really gossip about people, but I'm not really building anyone up either. Um, it's not that I'm really sour in my disposition, but at the same time, I'm not really joyful. At work, in my neighborhood, I talk about truth, but I don't really proclaim the truth of Christ. So it's not that I'm disobeying God and his commands, but I'm not seeing that I'm really clearly loving God and loving others as I'm commanded. So a person might say, Am I saved? 
the text is saying, maybe you're not. <laughs> and that's a hard thing. You see, this is a passage that is intended to wake us up. Remember, God is a God of relation, and in relationship, we don't just kind of just give words and walk away. God gives words, and he's saying, I'm trying to stir your heart. Why are you following me? How are you following me? Is it out of love because of the love I have given and showered upon you? Or are you just doing this because that's the tradition of your culture even? What we need to see here is the assurance is not my obedience, but that of Christ. Do you hear that? John is saying the assurance is not built upon how sure you are, but it's the assurance of who Christ is. As I grow in assurance, really what it's saying is, is I'm growing and trusting in what Christ has done for me. And as I see what Christ has done for me, then that gives me the power and the fuel, if you will, to turn back to him when I do sin. And so there's this cycle of, Jesus, you love me, and yet I do sin. And when I sin, rather than trying to deal with it myself, I turn back to you, Jesus, and I see your love. And it just keeps going back to Jesus again and again. So how do you know that you're trusting? You're obeying Christ more and more. He's more of your life. As he says in John chapter 14, if you love me, you obey me. And so John the apostle is saying, do you love the Lord? Are you keeping his word? Our last point is verse 6, the affirmation. Um, and you can back up a little bit with verse 5. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says that he ab abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Again, what is Christianity? Christianity is coming to the person of Christ. It's not a new ethic, it's not tradition, but it's the person of God. Christianity is faith and works going hand in hand. Um, obedience shows that your faith is actually genuine and real. It's so easy to say, I love God, but then if you're not following God, is your love real genuine? But look at verse 6 again. Christianity is costly. What is he calling us to do? He's saying, will you walk the way that Jesus walked? Friends, how did Jesus walk? He carried his own cross to Golgotha. He walked to the death that was going to pay for all the sins of his people, the elect of God. Why did Jesus walk that walk? He walked it for you. Jesus gave all for you, and now he's saying, would you give all for him? Jesus laid down his life for you, and John is saying, will you lay down your life for him? Jesus is the one who obeyed the Father, even going to the cross. And he's saying, would you deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him daily? What we're talking about here is incredibly difficult. Following Jesus is not easy because it means a death and even a death to ourselves. And what John is saying is, look, you can do this. Because when you are born again, you're given of the Spirit, and you begin to see that Jesus laid down his life for you. And then that's the feel for you to lay down your life. When you know Jesus this way, what John is saying, you have fellowship. You have assurance you are a Christian. I'm going to do something that's really sacrilegious. 
I'm going to confess something, and it's not a sin. Um, I'm confessing I like Weird Al Yankovic. And I grew up with that because he's actually older than I am, and um, I just really kind of like his music because it parodies stuff. So there's a parody of Coolio's Gangster Paradise. You know it, Amish Paradise. And I'm going to read something, and it, I'm going to read it. It's a little silly, but I want to get serious, so just bear with me. That's why I'm saying it's sacrilegious. But there's this uh, stanza. You think you're really righteous? You think you're pure in heart? Well, I know I'm a million times as humble as thou art. I'm the pious guy the little omelets want to be like. I'm on my, deep, on my knees day and night scoring points for the afterlife. If you were to ask an Amish person, are they offended by Weird Al Yankovic, they'd probably say no, except for one line. I'm on my knees, day and night, scoring points for the afterlife. That's offensive, because that's not grace. Um, again, we have people working in our home, and I'm getting to know their stories, and one of the contractors, um, he took care of his mom for 13 years, and he said, as soon as he said that, he said, it's getting me a couple steps closer to God. I'm climbing that ladder toward heaven. What John is saying is, is that's not how it works. When we obey God, it's not to get the points for afterlife. When we obey God, it's because he has given us life. <laughs> What's the motive for keeping his word? Because we love the one who gave us his word. Why did he give us his word? Because he laid down his very life for us. That's why we love him. He gave his life for us. He is the advocate. He is the righteous one. He is the propitiation for my sins. And so that's why, since Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, that's why we keep his word. That's why. Because he has done it all. Isn't that amazing news? Isn't that like amazing news? Isn't that the stuff that makes us smile? Isn't that the stuff that says, Amen. So let's go to the Lord and let's give him, a, give him our amen. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the propitiation. Thank you that you have paid it all. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come. And this is not us scoring points. This is you who scored it all for us. Jesus, we come to you in great humility. Our assurance is not that we've tried harder. Our assurance is that you've done it all. And so our assurance, when it comes down to it, is that you've given us a repentant faith. We've turned to you. And how do we know that that repentant faith is true? Is we're now following you. And that's not normal. That's, that's supernatural. <laughs> because following you, Lord Jesus, means denying ourselves, picking up our cross, loving you with all our heart, soul, and strength, and loving others. Jesus, would you give us assurance as we see how you are changing us? God, I pray for those who are really wrestling and they're saying, maybe I'm not really born again. Today, would you give to them a new godly sorrow that they would repent and say, Jesus, today I turn to you and I want to learn how to follow you. And if there's ways that I'm being fake, would you expose it that I would put those things off? All to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.